Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for um, just even how we've reflected on it already. Uh, Lord, your, your love is so kind to us and so gracious and so patient. And so, Father, we say thank you. We pray that as we look at uh, your word this morning, that you would continue to confirm that in our own hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, Clint already mentioned that this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And if you remember what Advent is, Advent is the anticipation of the arrival of someone important. Uh, and we all understand that because either someone important is coming to you for Christmas or you're the important person going somewhere for Christmas. Uh, and so that's what Advent is. You know, if you're going back, your, your mom is like preparing for you to come. Um, and she's excited about that. And that is really what Advent is. But of course, in the Christian calendar, the Advent that we celebrate is the coming of Christ. And we look back at his first coming and we look forward to his second coming. Uh, and on the fourth week of Advent, historically, the Christian church has focused on the word love. And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, I think about the time I was 12 or 13 years old. Um, we used to do Christmas Eve at uh, my house. Uh, the whole family would come. Um, but at that time, my grandmother lived in warm and sunny Florida. And so most Christmases, she was not going to come back to Chicago because it was too cold. And so the tradition was everyone else who's still in the area would come to my house. And then at some point on Christmas Eve, we'd call grandma and we'd pass the phone around to everyone at the house so that everyone could talk to her. This is my siblings, any cousins that were there, aunts, uncles, even people that she didn't know, they'd hand the phone to her and, and we'd all have a great time talking to grandma. And uh, this particular year, because I was always the youngest, I was always the last one to get the phone to talk to grandma. And so I grabbed the phone and I said, hi grandma, Merry Christmas. And she said, who is this? And I'm like, okay, by process of elimination, which of the grandchildren have you not spoken to yet? She forgot who I was. No, she didn't. She just, I don't know what it was, but she's like, oh yeah, of course, yes. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. And then I was like, did she send me the Christmas card with money in it this year or not? So let's find out under the tree. Um, and a uh, little bit of a, a left turn here, but if you're a praying person, <laughs> if you're a person who prays, it might very well be that from time to time when you've prayed, or it might be that all the times that you've prayed, it might feel that God's on the other end of the prayer saying, who is this? Or in modern vernacular, new phone, who dis? <laughs> That was a slow roller, but we got there. We got there in the end. Emily just got it. Okay. Perhaps it feels either that God's not listening at all, or even worse, that he's listening, but he doesn't care. Or maybe you believe he is listening, but he's got more pressing things to deal with, so your prayers have to wait. In other words, your loneliness, your empty bank account, your horrible boss or bad job, your family drama, or even your need or desire for some kind of spiritual awakening will just have to wait. If anything, will even change at all. It'd be easy to believe that based singularly on just how you feel, that maybe God's not listening, or he is, but he doesn't care, or yours isn't as important as other things. But there are facts that we believe as Christians that always ought to outweigh our feelings. Uh, in fact, facts always outweigh our feelings. 
They always outweigh our feelings. That's true in the courtroom. It's true in the banking ledger. It should be true in the newspapers. That when wanting to understand truth, that facts would always outweigh feelings. And that's definitely true for the Christian faith, that there are facts to our faith that we can cling to, even when our feelings don't match up. And so the passage that we're looking at today on the fourth Sunday of Advent is one of those facts of the faith that show us, regardless of how we feel, there is no chance in the universe that God does not love you, regardless of how you feel. What's stated in this passage is a point of fact. And that should always outweigh any feeling that you have. So here's what John 3.16 shows us. It shows us the immensity of the gift that God gave at Christmas. It shows us the immensity of the love of God and the immensity of our need for that love. So we're going to look at this extremely familiar verse, and we'll do it under three headings. First, the immensity of the love of God. Second, the immensity of the need of the world. And thirdly, the immensity of the gift of Jesus Christ to the world. So the need, the gift, sorry, the love, the need, and the gift. So let's look first at the immensity of the love of God. And again, here's our our text for today. And we're only going to really look at this one. I'll refer to the other ones, but we're really only going to look deeply at this one verse. You might want to have it open. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, how is it that I can say the love of God is immense? Because after all, we've just got done saying, and I think many of you have just agreed with me, I saw heads nodding, that we don't always or even often feel the love of God in our hearts. That we feel that we're lacking in some way God's loving presence in the day-to-day of life. And so if that is true, then how could I get away with saying that the, the love of God is immense? Well, the reason is because the one who is doing the love is immense. That in every aspect of his being, he is immense. The immensity of the love of God flows from the immensity of his person. And we already know how this works. Because whatever your character is, whatever your identity is, you cannot help it. That is what flows out of you. That quality of your character is what comes out of you at every possible opportunity. Um, I have a friend, and maybe you have, I hope you have a friend like this, who is the most uh, generous person that I know. Now, this person is not particularly wealthy. He's not a person of great means. And yet... He's always giving things away. Not because, not because he can, not because his bank account is so big he can just give away things without it impacting him in some way, but he does it because central to his identity as a person is generosity. Uh, we were once at a conference together, and I don't know why, other than I think he just wanted to give me as his friend an expression of generosity. Uh, he had bought, he brought with him a brand new, uh, like $50 probably polo brand shirt, like a nice shirt, had the little, you know, polo player here on the thing. 
And it was still wrapped in the, like, the nice packaging when you get it at the store. And I'm standing just in the, the main room of the conference center, and he walks in, and he walks by me, and he takes this thing, and he just flips it over to me. And I was like, why did you give this to me? He goes, just because. Just because. The first time that we ever went out to eat together, he said to me, now before you order, I just want you to know this is on me. And I want you to order like you've never ordered before. Just get whatever you want. And if you can't decide between two things, get them both and then take the leftovers home. <laughs> and every other time we've had a meal out since then, he said the exact same thing to me. It's on me, order like you've never ordered before. Order like you've always wanted to order. And those are just two examples. And maybe you have a friend who's like that, but here's how this works. My friend is generous. In his heart, he is generous. It's, it's in his character. It's in his person. He is, a, he is generous, and so what flows out of him at every opportunity is generosity. And that's what happens when anyone's, with anyone's identity, that whoever they are in their character, that's what flows out of their actions. And so if someone in their character, their identity is honest, then honesty and truth-telling just flows out of them at every opportunity. If they're patient in their character, then patience is what flows out of them. And of course, the, the converse of that is also true, that if there's poor character, that also flows out of their actions. But let's get back to this idea, then, that the immensity of the love of God flows from the immensity of his character. And just look at the God who John is referring to in John 3.16. Who is this God who loves? Well, John is not referring to any lowercase g God or any form of God described outside the Bible. He's referring solely and only to the God of the Bible. That is what's informing his understanding of who this God is who so loved the world. And so who is this God described in the pages of Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22? Well, the psalmist speaks of him this way. The psalmist says, great is the Lord and most worthy of his praise. His greatness no one can fathom. The prophets speak of him this way. They say, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. God himself describes himself this way. Do you remember uh, in Exodus when Moses wants to see God's glory? We talk about this a lot around here. God says, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And he said, okay, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you as I walk by. So I'm going, when I walk past you, I'm going to tell you my name. In other words, I'm going to tell you my character. And what is that name? What is the name he proclaims? Well, a chapter later when it actually happens, it says this, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithful, faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And so when John says, for God, this is the God he's referring to. This is the God, his greatness, no one can fathom. 
He is the everlasting God. His understanding is unsearchable. He is compassionate and merciful, abounding in faithfulness and truth, who forgives wrongdoing and sin, and yet he does not let the guilty go unpunished. So just to sum it all up for you, I like A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and here are the summary categories that describe the person and character of God that he gives. And so in this book, each chapter, he talks about a character quality of who God is. And so God is a trinity living in perfect unity. He is beyond our understanding. He is utterly self-existent. He is utterly self-sufficient. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is unchanging. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, yet completely other from his creation. He is utterly faithful, utterly good, utterly just, utterly merciful, utterly gracious. He is holy, holy, holy. He is completely sovereign over all things in heaven and in creation. And he is immensely loving. And he holds each of those qualities, not in part, but in completeness and in wholeness, in perfection, Not one of them ever able to diminish the other, never putting one quality aside in order to embody another. And this is the God of John 3, 16, for God. And this is the God who loves you. And so can we just pause to let that sink in a little bit? Now, when Tozer, in that same book, talks about the love of God, this is what he writes. From God's other known attributes, we may learn much about his love. We can know, for instance, that because God is self-existence, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, It has no limit. Because he is holy, it is a quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. That is the love of God. This is the immense love of God. His love is immense because he himself in his character is immense. He holds every aspect of his character in perfect and utter fullness and completeness. There is nothing lacking in God, and so therefore there is nothing lacking in the love of God. Now, one reason you may not feel that you're experiencing much of the love of God in your life these days could be it could be that you're actually living with too low a view of God. You're not elevating him to the level of his immensity. Well, just one more thought from Tozer in his book, and then we'll move on. But I think this might help those of you who feel that for one reason or another, you're not experiencing the immense love of God in your day today. Here's what Tozer says. A right conception of God is basic, not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple, 
Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. And the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Now here's the point. The reason that you may feel unloved or feel like God is somehow loving you less than maybe he's loving someone else likely has nothing to do with the actual amount of love that God has for you. It might just be that your view of God is too low. And so that's the immensity of the love of God. That it flows from who he is. But let's look now at the immensity of the need for the world. This is point two. It says, for God so loved the world. Now, what does John mean by the world? Well, the word there for world is the word that throughout the New Testament and specifically in John's writing means not the the natural world. He's not talking about plants and trees and mountains and rivers and oceans. In fact, John uses this particular word over 100 times in all of his writings in the New Testament. 78 times he actually uses them in the book that we're looking at right now, the book of John. And when he uses the word world, he's talking about humankind. But he's even more specifically talking here about humankind that is in opposition to God. We have these verses read, but just a a couple verses down in verse 18, John explains the world was made up of people who it says stand condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In other words, when John talks about the world here, he's talking about humanity that has rejected God. And he describes how humanity has rejected God in verses 19 and 20. John explains that the world is made up of people who have loved darkness rather than light. In other words, he says they love evil rather than good. That's what the world is made up of. People who love evil rather than good. That that's their inclination. You know, elsewhere in the Bible it says that our hearts are inclined only towards evil all the time. And our hearts are deceptive above all things. And so that's the world that John's talking about. But remember the list of God's character? Remember the one about his goodness? That God is utterly good? And what that means is any embrace of anything evil is actually a rejection of God himself because he is utterly good. So if you, if you embrace anything that is evil, then you've rejected God. And what John is saying here in verse 18 is that the world has embraced evil rather than good. And so when it says in John three sixteen that God so loved the world, that's the world that John's talking about. The one who rejects God. Now, let's put these words in John 3, 16 back together, and, and I hope you'll see my point. It says, for God so loved the world. And let me just amplify this for us. For God, whose greatness no one can fathom, who is the everlasting God, who is beyond our comprehension, who is utterly self-existent, utterly self-sufficient, eternal, infinite, unchanging, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present and yet completely other from his creation, so loved the world. So loved those who have rejected him by embracing evil rather than good. So loved those who have embraced darkness rather than light. 
for God so loved the world. And do you see the disparity there? And here comes the great point of this verse. The more unlovable the object of the love, the greater the love for the object. The more unlovable the object of the love, the greater the love for the object. And that is what we are, unlovable, unlovely people who have rejected God. And yet despite our unloveliness, God loves us with his immense love anyway. He meets our immense need for love with his immense love. That is how loved you are. Uh, I tell, well, Emmy and I, we tell married engaged couples all the time that you know the times when your spouse or your soon-to-be spouse is least lovable, when they are acting selfish, when they reject you, when they shame or disrespect you, but you love them anyway, you serve them anyway, you show kindness to them anyway, you love them in spite of it, that is when you're the most loving spouse you can be. Not the times when they're great. Because a person always exercises the greatest amount of love towards another person when the other person doesn't deserve it. And this is how God loves the world. And that is how God loves you. And the expression of that love then is point three. But one last thing, just by way of application on how God loves you versus how you and I love because it might also be that you don't feel that you're experiencing the love of God in your life because you're con- you've confused how you and I love and the way that God loves. You've, you sort of confuse them together. Because in reality, the way that God loves is very different from the way that you and I love. Uh, Miroslav Volf, who's a, a theologian at Yale, uh, in his book, Free of Charge, he's actually reflecting on how Martin Luther described the love of God And at first, quoting Luther, uh, Wolf quotes Luther, and he says, The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is already pleasing to it. In other words, what Luther is saying is, God's love doesn't seek out something or someone attractive and good and lovable. Instead, what the love of God does is it creates out of the unattractive, evil, unlovable person an attractive, good, and lovable one. Whereas human love seeks something that is already attractive, seeks something that is already good, already beautiful, already lovable, and then makes that person or that thing the object of his or her love. Do you see the difference? And here's what Wolf then goes on to say about what Luther says. He said, divine love never had to come into being at all. It wasn't elicited by its object. It simply is. It doesn't depend on the truth, beauty, or goodness of the beloved. As Luther stated, because God's love isn't caused by its object, it can love those who are not lovable. Unlike merely human love, divine love gives and doesn't receive. Now, why is this important? Well, because if you feel in any way that you are not worthy of God's love, if you feel in any way that you are too full of shame, 
too full of sin, too full of selfishness, too full of brokenness and pride in order to be loved by God? You're just wrong. You're completely wrong. Because God's love does not seek out an already beautiful, lovable object and love it because it's already beautiful. He seeks out the broken. He seeks out the unlovely, the unlovable. And his love turns that object into something beautiful. That is the love of God for the world. For God so loved the world, that's what it says, which means his immense love meets you right at the point of your immense need for that love. Okay, point three, the expression of that love, which is the immensity of the gift of Jesus Christ to the world. Now look at our verse again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The last time that my siblings and I exchanged gifts on Christmas uh, was quite a while ago. Uh, maybe 20 years ago now. And the reason that we stopped was because it had gotten a little bit ridiculous. Uh, we always struggled to find a good gift for one another. Uh, and so inevitably you'd end up with a pile of stupid gifts that you didn't really want or need. Um, and in the end, what I suggested to my family, and this is a horrible suggestion, one Thanksgiving as we were deciding what we were going to do for Christmas, I was like, hey, you know, instead of us giving us each other gifts that we don't want, why don't we just... Everyone go buy a gift card for $25, and uh, you know, then you can give that to the person. So like, if you want one from Best Buy, just say you want a gift card from Best Buy, and then you know, somebody can give you one from Best Buy and vice versa. And then Christmas came, and it was the stupidest Christmas we'd ever had, because literally we're just exchanging $25. <laughs> and we finally realized we weren't giving because we wanted to give gifts to each other. It was obligatory giving. We're giving because we have to. We're putting exactly zero thought into it because it wasn't even like me thinking, oh, what, what store would my brother like a gift from this year? It was like he told me he wanted it from Farm and Fleet, and so I will buy him the $25 gift card from Farm and Fleet so he can buy new overalls or something. I don't know what he buys with things at Farm and Fleet, but no thought, not even a desire. It wasn't actually giving in the truest sense of the word because we're just exchanging. But that is not at all how God gives. There's nothing obligatory or thoughtless in how God gives. In fact, you can always tell something about the nature of the love that the giver has for the recipient by the nature of the gift. The greater the gift... In other words, the greater the sacrifice made to give the gift, the more marvelous the love for the recipient. And that is never more true than in God's gift of his son to the world. Just look for a moment at how John describes the gift of the son. It says that God gave his one and only son. Now in the original language, that word means only begotten. It means unique. It means singular. It means one of a kind. It means there's not another one in the cupboard. In other words, once you give it away, there's, there's, not, there's nothing more to give. You can't order a second one. There's only one Son of God, and God the Father gave him away. 
That's what's happening in all the Christmas stories we read in Matthew and Luke, that the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas is the moment of God's most generous gift. And to really grasp the depths of his love for us, we need to to do a little bit of theology, so stick with me, because I think it will pay off in the end. Remember that list of God's character and his person from earlier? Remember how it started with God is a trinity living in perfect unity? And a bit later on, it said that God is eternal and unchanging. Now here's the theology, so stick with me. If God is eternal and unchanging, that means he has been who he is from all eternity and has never changed. Not once. It also says that God is a trinity, a tri-unity, living in perfect unity, which means that he has been a trinity for all of eternity and that has never, ever, ever changed. And so what does that mean then about the father's relationship to the son? Well, it means that from all eternity, God has been a father perfectly, eternally, without change, loving a son, and a son without ever changing, perfectly loving a father. There is nothing more precious then to God the Father than God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and vice versa. And that is how it has been for all eternity. Now, do you see the nature of the gift that God has given? There is nothing obligatory because we could never, ever, ever give a reciprocal gift. And there is nothing half-hearted or thoughtless about God's gift of his son. It is the most thoughtful and generous gift ever given because he is his one and only son. And not only is God's gift of his son generous because of the cost, it's also generous because the identity of the gift itself Over in Colossians chapter 1, it says this about Jesus Christ, God the Son. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is what the gift of God is. He gives us his very self. All of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the gift that God has given to the undeserving world that has rejected him. This is the immense love of God, meeting the immense need of the world through the immensity of the gift of God, Jesus Christ, his eternal son who was crucified, dead, and buried for our sins, but who was raised to life and exalted to the highest place, so that, as this verse says, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, that eternal life is not just like, hey, it's nice, but actually with him. That the gift that we get is eternity with this God. And I love what the Apostle Paul says about this in Romans chapter 8, because maybe you're saying, okay, I get all this stuff about the love of God and salvation through Jesus Christ, and that's wonderful. But what about everything else in my life? Where's the love in my day today? What about the big problems in my life? Where's the love of God in that situation? Well, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on this, and he says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
But let's read on. He goes on to say, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And then get this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Does anything that you're going through fit underneath any of those categories? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the love of God for you. This is the love of God for you. And if you are found in Christ, that is, if you are, as this verse says, believing in his name for the forgiveness of sins, the salvation of your soul, the security of your future in heaven with him, then what this is telling us is that nothing will ever separate you from his love. Nothing. Nothing. And so if that's all true, Then back to our original question. Why don't I feel like I'm experiencing that love? Well, I'm going to give you one truth, one prayer to pray, and one exercise to do. And if you can cling to this truth, and if you can pray this prayer, and if you regularly do this little exercise, then over time, you will begin to feel that you are experiencing the immense love of God for you. So here's the truth, and in your order of service, you got one of these little strips of paper. And the truth is that first verse on there, Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the irrefutable truth. This is not a feeling. This is not based on how you feel. This is the truth of what God's word says, that his love is poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to you. This is your hope. This is your love. This is irrefutable truth, regardless of how you feel. This is the truth. And here's the prayer. This is worded as a prayer for you, but you can reword this as your own prayer. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And this is a prayer that you could pray every day. You could pray multiple times a day. God, would you direct my heart into your love and Christ's perseverance? This is a prayer that you can pray. And then here's an exercise. We tend to think that because God is so grand and immense that he only works through grand and immense gestures. 
But he's also a patient and tender God who cares about the small things too. So here's the exercise. Rather than only looking for the immense love of God in the big things, begin to take note of his love in the small things. The taste of a good meal or a nice cup of coffee and the specificity of his word for your needs and your heart as you, as you read his word. In his day-to-day provision for your daily needs. In the way that there was a kind person to help you right when you needed it. There must be a hundred ways each and every day that God expresses his love for you. If only you'll slow down enough to notice it. And so the exercise is to find a way to slow down and notice those little ways that God shows his love for you. If you're a journaler, journal it. If you're a prayer, pray it. If you're a verbose person, share it. But find some way to slow down and recognize the little tiny ways that he loves you. And if you can't think of anything on any given day, well then let the gospel be enough for that day. The gospel that at Christmas Jesus Christ came in humility as a baby, that he died in humility for your sins, that he rose again and then ascended to the highest place where he's given the name that is above every name and where he exercises all authority in heaven and on earth to intercede for you and that he is one day coming again. And so if you can't think of anything else, let that be enough. And so listen, if there is one thing that I know to be true, one thing in this whole universe that I know to be true, it is that God loves you with an intensity, with an immensity beyond comprehension. And he has showed that love to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And let's pray. Our Father, we... Well, as Tozer said, we, we almost have to just fall on our knees when we think of the immensity of your love for us. That you would use every resource that you have to pour your love into our hearts through your Holy Spirit in order that we would know that we are loved. And so, Father, for, for those of us who are struggling to grasp that love in this moment, in this time of year, for whatever reason, would you tenderly, by your Holy Spirit, pour that love into our hearts? That you would direct our hearts into your love and Christ's perseverance. And we ask it in his name. Amen.